Welcome to the Live Big Podcast featuring Dr. Derek Greer, where we teach principles from God's Word that will empower you to live big. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com. Here's Dr. Greer. Father, open eyes, illuminate hearts, meet needs here, Father. People had other things to do, but they came to your house because you are the potter and you know how to put missing and broken pieces back together again. We give you all the honor and all the glory. And the church says, Amen. Last week we started a communion series and uh, we discovered in our time of, of looking at the scriptures that when Jesus first uh, or had the, the, the first communion, he actually called it a covenant. So in order to understand communion, it's vital that we have an understanding of what a covenant is and what it meant to Jesus and the people of his time. So uh, what we've done is we're starting to outline some of the major components of a covenant. There's roughly about 10. You can have 11, some say nine, but we've already covered four and we started last week. Number one, there are covenant promises, covenant promises. All the promises in him are yes and amen. Why? Because it's a covenant. All right. Number two, there is a sacrifice or a bloody sacrifice. Number three, there are blessings and curses. Number four, there is the walk of blood or the mingling of blood. Sometimes they walk through uh, the blood of dead animals. Sometimes there'd be a cut in a hand and you mingle blood. Sometimes they would cut a finger, put it in a, a glass of wine and, and drink it. However, there are some bloodless covenants in the Bible, and we're going to cover one today. Can we take care of these speakers here a little bit for me today? First Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1. David had just defeated Goliath, and he stood before King Saul with the giant's head uh, in his hand, and instantly David became a, a rock star. But soon and very quickly, a problem would, would emerge between David and King, King Saul here. How many of y'all remember? They started singing songs and, and David, you know, I'm sorry, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his what? Tens of thousands. See, everyone loves a winner until you're the competition. And that's what happens in life. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, Saul saw a man of like spirit. He'd already done exploits in the name of God. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now this language is the same language that was used in the book of Genesis chapter 44 relating to Jacob's love for his son Benjamin. And I don't know why everybody makes everything weird, you know. Two men can love each other but without it becoming immoral, okay? And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They had each other's back. This was like Kirk and, and Spock. This was like Jackie Chan and, and, and Chris Tucker. This, this, this is if you're old enough to go way back. This is like Trey and Ricky. These guys. These guys were ride or die. And in dangerous environments, like the environments they, they, they were in, one of the most dangerous places to be was in the palace. 
There's always palace intrigue. Somebody was trying to kill somebody else, or they, they were afraid someone was going to try to take the, the, the throne. And, and in such an environment, you know, young people, uh, particularly, you know, these two guys, they needed to have someone in their lives that, that, that had their back. And, you know, it doesn't matter who's in front of you when, when you know that God has placed the right people beside you. So Saul has just uh, seen David do this great exploit. Matter of fact, Saul should have fought Goliath, but he was a punk and he backed out and he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He should have fought Goliath. But instead, this little young whippersnapper stepped up and, and used his uh, slingshot. So he saw the spirit of faith in David. And he took him that day and would not let him go home. Not that David didn't want to go, but he would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So basically from that day forward, David moved in with the king's family. And God has a way of using circumstances in your life to prepare you for the next season. See, David might not have understood everything about what was going to happen in his life, but God was going to make him king. So what did he do? He brought him around the king. The same thing with Joseph. How many of you remember the narrative? You know, God's going to use him. He's going to become number two to Pharaoh. But what happens? He begins to work for Potiphar. And as he worked for Potiphar, he was exposed to people that, that operated around the throne. And, 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 it, and then, you know, he went to the prison and all the rest. But by the time, you know, he began to serve the Pharaoh, he had actually been trained. So what you're going through right now may seem like something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's not based on right now. It's based on where you're going. But verse 3, it says, then Jonathan and David made a covenant. In its simplest terms, a covenant is simply a binding agreement between two or more parties. It could be unilateral like a will where, you know what, I want this for my child or, or my friend or et cetera, and that friend doesn't have to uh, have anything to, to do with it. Or it could be bilateral like a, a marriage where, you know, it, it takes two there. But when a covenant is entered into, it is ironclad. And we're still talking about communion. And what I want you to realize, we're not just having a snack in church. The blood or the, 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 the cup and the bread represent an ironclad covenant with God. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. We don't know how many years passed before this happened. But here's the deal. Because they were not blood, they, they weren't kinfolk, you know, they, they weren't related. They had to appeal to something stronger than blood to bind them together. And here it's called a covenant. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. So these two were the original Batman and Robin. If you took on one, you were taking on the other. And actually, this is what Jesus said. He said, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to, to, to love folks that God's placed in our lives as we love our own souls. And often the best cure for a bad day is a good friend. And Jonathan took off the robe. Now remember, Jonathan was the crown prince. And in this period, a person's status was made obvious by the clothes 
he wore. Now, nowadays, you can borrow money to get a Louis Vuitton and all the rest. But back then, if you had a Louis, you hear what I'm saying? Or, you know, I don't, I'm running out of names. I just know my wife got them all. But if you... <laughs> But some of y'all broke with them purses and those cars, you hear what I'm saying? But back then, the clothes you wore represented your status. So if you were a slave, people would see you coming. You only wore a, a tunic down to your knees. If you were, as you see on the screen, this, that's Romans time, a little bit later than now. The, 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 the folks with, with money, they would dye their clothes. And dye was super expensive. Remember Lydia, the seller of purple? Purple was as expensive as gold because it was rare. And the, 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 the elite class would dye their clothing. Sometimes they, they sew it on, the dyed clothes, to the existing clothing. But they had multicolored clothing. And you would see them coming. But a prince's garment was especially crafted and especially embroidered. And you knew who Jonathan was from a distance. Every prince and princess, you'd see them coming. So here you have this prince in this incredible robe that distinguished him from every other citizen in the nation. And Jonathan took off the robe. By the way, his outer robe, not his undergarments. Pay attention to what I'm saying. See, I got to say that for some of y'all in this room. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Now, we just learned point number five, and it really should have been point number one, that a covenant requires at least two or more parties, two or more parties. But now we see component six, and because we're not from this era, we're kind of blind to these things. We don't naturally see these things. But in some sense, th these things still exist today. So six, the sixth component here is the exchange of gifts. Whenever a covenant was made, there was an exchange of gifts. Because we're Westerners, when we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we start thinking about Pentecostals, we start thinking about Baptists, but we need to understand in covenant, a gift exchange is essential or essential. And the gifts of the Spirit are part of the covenant they actually bear witness to the fact that we are in covenant with the most high, supernatural, powerful God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And wherever you have the people of God, you're going to see God's giftings in those people. But in this day, and when you go to the Middle East, you'll find that, you know, gifts are a big deal. Around here, you know, it's not as big a deal, but the gifts over there are a big deal. And if you don't accept a person's gift, it could be a problem. If you give someone too big a gift, it can be a problem. But, but, but here we see that the exchange of gifts was sometimes by itself enough to establish a literal covenant because this is all that's exchanged in this setting are gifts. And this is why mama used to tell you don't accept gifts from strangers. But because it opens the door to people taking certain liberties. 
Even though we, we might not be from that culture, there's something intuitive about us that knows that gift means a little bit more than just a gift. So when, they, when, when, when this prince exchanged his garment with David, the Bible's gonna describe this as a covenant. His robe with his armor. Now, both of these men were on this, the, the same path to the same throne. But what's important is their friendship was rare because it proved stronger than envy and stronger than competition. Like I said, everybody loves you till you're competition. But here, these two men, everyone's singing David's praise, not Jonathan's, and he's the crown prince. Everyone loves David. But David, I'm sorry, Jonathan is big enough to, 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 to take what's his and watch, offer it to him, even to his sword and his bow. Jonathan was saying through his actions, basically, David, now my status is your status. Because now David was able to wear a prince's robe. Pay attention to what's happening here. He was saying, David, now my weapons, which might even include his armor bearer, are now your weapons. And this is what happens in Christ. His status becomes our status. His armor becomes our armor. His weapons become our weapons. That's why it says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. They're God's weapons that he makes available to us. Pay attention here. When you fight for everything that God has created you to be, you will always win. And God will give you the equipment and the tools to fight for your status and your assignment. Second Samuel 4 and 4. Years have passed, and Jonathan finally dies in battle, as, long as, his, as, as well as his daddy. Verse 4, watch what happens. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who, who was lame in his feet. We're about to see that in one day, this little boy loses his father, his throne, and he was crippled by no fault of his own. How I many you know life can be unfair? He was just five years old. And some things happen to us when we're young that it's almost impossible to recover from. This little boy was only five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. They found out that Jonathan was killed. And his nurse took him up and fled. When they found out that Jonathan was killed, they, they knew that they were going to be coming. Someone might be coming for the next in line to the throne. And it happened. And sometimes stuff just happens. The boy didn't do anything wrong. He's five years old. You can't do anything wrong at five. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell. 
For the rest of this morning, I want to talk to folks who have been dropped. Dropped by someone who was supposed to take care of you. Dropped by someone you trusted. Dropped by someone who should have taken better care. Dropped by someone who ought to have known better. Dropped by someone so wrapped up in their predicament that you're the one that got hurt. The nurse assigned to protect the child made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And what we're reading actually applies to all of us because we've all been crippled one way or another by the fall. Everyone has at least one impediment or another in our lives. It's just that some are a little bit more obvious than others. And this is the introduction to this, this person that they're about to name. And his name was Mephibah Sheth. This argument about what his name means, some say it means mouth of shame, but others means destroy of shame. But either way, every single person in this room, live streaming, in the multi-purpose room can identify with him because we all have conditions that we're not proud of. We all have things that have happened in our lives that we're just not happy about. And sometimes we even try to hide. I remember, I've shared this with you before, when I was in college, there was this beautiful girl and uh, I, we had a class at the same time, and I, I, I was, my dorm was downtown, and I had to, you know, uh, get on the bus to, 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 to go to class. And every day she would have a sweater around her hand. And then when I see her on campus, she'd have a sweater around her arm. And I asked my buddy, what's, what's, what's up with, you know, why, what's up with the sweaters? And he said, uh, she's missing some fingers on her hand. As beautiful as she was, not as beautiful as my wife, of course. Just, just gotta be careful how I'm talking here. I felt that. I felt, I felt a little tug there. <laughs> she still lived in hiding. And all of us will have areas in our lives. As great as they are, as wonderful as God has been. We all have those areas that we're just not super excited about. Areas that we are not just so proud of. Second Samuel 9 and 3. Watch what happens to Mephibosheth. Then the king said, Jonathan was dead. David is now seated on the throne. David is actually winning every battle he fights. I mean, David's a bad boy. He's at the height of his success and, and, and career here. At the height, at the top of his game, he said, is there not still someone? It's a lament. He's crying in his heart. And we're about to discover this is not just the sensitivities of David. He's actually representing the sensitivities of God. He said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show, watch this, watch this, the kindness 
of God. Now, in those days, a king would wipe out anyone who was a potential threat, anyone who had any lineage where he could or she could possibly claim the throne. But David here is not acting in normal interests. He's not acting like a typical king. The Bible says he's showing the kindness of God. My Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He's, he's, he's actually groaning in himself. This is not what kings did. And he's saying, is there still not someone of the house of Saul was his enemy? Saul was trying to kill David. Jonathan loved him, but Saul hated him and pursued him for years like a dog. But he's about to show us the kindness of God. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, to whom I may show the kindness of God. We see here David even loving his enemies. This is not the kindness of David. If you want to know the kindness of God, you have to watch what happens in this narrative. The New Testament picks up on this. It says in Romans 5 and 8, it talks about the radical kindness the radical mercy, the radical goodness of our God. Unlike any other, it makes no sense. It's impractical in so many ways. It costs God his own son, the kindness and the mercies of God. Actually, the Bible speaks of the tender mercies of David. Pay attention, though. But God demonstrates he doesn't just give us theology about it, philosophy about it. He doesn't just send books and, and, and send oracles. God demonstrates. He takes on a human form and says, let me show you in, in, in body. I'm going to become Emmanuel. So it won't just be a concept in somebody's brain. You will see it in living color. You'll touch it, feel it. You can smell it and even taste it in the air. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he didn't wait till we got cleaned up. He didn't wait till we got it together. He didn't wait till we did better. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's the same God and would do it again if it required it. Be bold because you're a child of God. But also be kind because everyone else is too. And Ziva, what a name said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who was lame in his feet. So Ziba wanted to qualify it because when the king found out how much of a mess Mephibosheth was in, he probably dis discarded him. And he wanted to be responsible for that. But watch four. But the king said to him, where is him? Where is he? The, the reason David had to ask where Mephibosheth was, 
was because Mephibosheth was in hiding. He didn't know the heart of the king. He was hiding from the very one that wanted to make him a prince. Many of us are hiding from God. Thinking for whatever reason he's out to get us, but you need to understand that if God was trying to get you, you'd already be God. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> God knows how to find you. You have been listening to the Live Big Podcast with Dr. Derek Greer. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com or follow Dr. Greer on social media. 